Welcome back, it's time for Customers Who Click. It's my favourite topic again today, conversion rate optimization. And this week I had the pleasure of chatting with Shiva Manjanath from Spiro. We're going to be chatting about the big myths and mistakes brands face in CRO, as well as they actually need to be focusing on. Let's get Shiva on now. Hi, Shiva. Thanks for joining me today. Would you mind just uh, introduce yourself, give us a bit of your background and how you've got to where you are today? For sure. Yeah. So I'm Shiva. I'm a senior strategist at Spiro. I've been in experimentation for like 10 years, which seems weird to say, but time truly has flown by. I haven't done exclusively experimentation, but experimentation digital marketing adjacent for 10 years. But yeah, I mean, I started off as kind of doing digital marketing at a startup. Um, well, I guess before that, I was in med school and I absolutely hated it and I didn't like blood. So I didn't want to do that anymore. So <laughs> yeah. instead, I wanted to do more digital marketing stuff because I'm a super geek. So been in experimentation, digital marketing for about 10 years, worked at agencies, startups way back when, worked at Edible Arrangements, Norwegian Cruise Line, Gartner, and on my latest stint at uh, Spiro experimentation kind of consulting agency. So, yeah. Sweet. Sounds good. Yeah, I guess kind of similar. I I did, like, I, I didn't do CRO until quite a few years into the career, but I was doing a lot of testing, a lot of experimentation, a lot of like customer research and things like around it. I mean, that's what we are generally these people who just do that, right? Like, I'm sure there's stuff you're doing in your life that you're actually testing out. You don't like just follow the advice. You're probably like, for me, I test my coffee. I have like a super optimized setup where I can optimize my temperature. I can optimize my pour speed, grind size of the beans. There's so many, like when I train my dog, I like try out different things to see what works. I'm sure you've always been a tester at heart. Yeah. Yeah. It's always kind of, there's lots of like recording, doing things and then recording like why I've done them, what I think the change is going to be like Mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff. I suppose that started like from school. Right, yep. doing doing experiments in science class, mm-hmm. having to do hypothesis and and all that sort of stuff, and even so, at the moment, the the big thing for me is training. Like, when am I training? That that, that has been the biggest one for me. So, you know, especially I've got a dog as well, and the biggest problem I found is when do I go to the gym? Given that yeah. I I hate going to the gym after work because it's always mm-hmm. so busy. Mm-hmm. So when do I find the time in the rest of the day when I've also got to walk the dog twice in that time? Yeah, especially yep. especially now when when it's dark early on. Yeah, right. So I can't even walk him late, really, because he freaks out at people with torches, which is a bit annoying. It, but it's interesting because you think about the analogy of like, well, not the analogy. So one of the things I do not like is this general term around best practices, and one of the things that. I think is interesting about it is if you use the gym analogy, there's a basic list of just workouts to do like bench press, curls, cardio, run on a treadmill, run outside, some basic stuff that generally works for everyone. And that's kind of an adjacent to best practices. However, I think what is what I think that analogy falls short is you can only do that for so much without realizing that you're a different person than everyone else and you need unique needs. So you need to understand what works for you and what doesn't. So for me, I followed all those workouts and I saw some very small incremental lift. For me, it was better for me just the process of going to the gym every day and doing something that was extremely helpful for me to just build that repetition of just keep on doing it and yeah. the process. But 
where I fell short very quickly is I just like plateaued very quickly. And then I started to explore things like alternative workouts. And that's when I got a personal trainer and like, it just got, it just took me to a different level. He's like, he saw me, he saw my needs. I'm logging my goals. He's looking at all my data and he's saying, all right, well, looks like your max is at 140 right now. Let's bump that up. Let's try another thing. Let's get you, let's get you pumped out a different way. And that's a personalized routine for me based on my data, based on my reps. And then there's optimizations like supplements, creatine, caffeine, green tea extract, all the flashy, all the flashy supplemental things you could do. But I think that's something that's like an analogy that I've used a lot, which is what frustrates me about like best practices is that it could work for a lot of people. It could, but also like if you're not following it properly, and I don't think I was doing the workouts themselves properly. Like instead of doing a bench press with the proper technique of like arching your back and lifting at a slight diagonal up, I was just trying to push the bar up and I was probably hurting myself more than actually helping. It's good for our process perspective to do something, but I think that I actually, the analogy actually works a lot better than I think it does. There's a good similarities between gyms and best practices and websites. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, the method that works for me is just either doing one more rep or one more weight than the previous workout. So I know that every single workout I'm beating the one before. And mm-hmm. that's what, um, I, I do see results from it, but also that's what keeps me going. Yeah. Because if I'm, I, I know that when I was doing sets, which were just do three sets of 10 reps at this weight and do that week after week, it just, I just found it boring as well. But yeah. as soon as it became, I've either got to do one more rep than last time or one more yeah. like, level up on the weight. That's what yeah. drove me forwards. But get back onto CRO topic a little bit more. I want to start with obviously the, the the question that I start with everyone with, how do you get customers clicking? Yeah. So I think that's an interesting topic for me around something I've been thinking a lot about, which is just motivation. I recently tried to buy DoorDash, just was being super lazy. I didn't want to go to the store to get any food. So DoorDash had the food just delivered to me. It's more expensive, but whatever, pay for convenience. But as I was navigating through it, that that site was just super slow. Like it was painfully slow. The URLs, redirects, like so much stuff was happening and it was painfully slow on my phone. And then I was like, all right, whatever. I don't want to do this anymore. And then I just kind of laced around for a little bit. And I got an email that's like, hey, discount. And I'm for DoorDash. I was like, all right. And if I quickly did the math, I'm like, all right, this is going to like cost me like $8 for like a large pizza. That's a pretty good deal. So that increased my motivation to want to buy. And it's like a large, like a big pizza. I could have like leftovers for days. So I was extremely motivated based on the discount to then go back into their really terrible site and suffer through that process of very slow site redirects, things constantly just popping in or I'm making a tap and something pops in and then it loads something else. And like, this is so frustrating. But my motivation to save outweighed any of the roadblocks of slow, painful site, non-usable to convert. And I ultimately did convert and it was a painful process. But it's, it's that formula around like motivation versus friction, right? My motivation was so high that friction would never stop me. And if you think about a more egregious example, if I asked you to fill out a 500 form questionnaire, but you'd get a free Tesla out of it, no strings attached, most people would probably be extremely motivated to fill it out. 
unless it's a, like social security number on a random stuff like you might feel a little sketchy yeah. out about security wise but like their motivation is incredibly high to fill out something even if the friction is there and i think that's something that a lot of websites just don't do well they don't focus on those motivating factors that get people interested and a lot of, I think, even a lot of CRO experimentation people focus in on optimizations to getting people through the funnel without realizing that there actually is no motivation. So it doesn't matter how easy it is for you to fall down a slide. They haven't even taken the steps to want to climb the slide to go down it. So like, it doesn't yeah. matter how, how, how easy it is to go down the funnel. Yeah, it's... It it's an inter- interesting you chose to talk about discounts, though, because that's one that I I try and stay away from. Not exactly stay away from discounts completely. I think they have their their purpose, mm-hmm. but it's not the solution, is it? It's like a agree, you know, agree. Um, ideally, you'd go and you'd go and fix the the website, right? The experience. If if next time if that discount's not there, you're not going to go and well, you might not go and buy the pizza, right? So in this case, my motivation, because I'm cheap as hell, increased significantly because I got offered a discount that I don't normally get offered. Or my perceived value was a lot higher than the cost it would take me. If I got an $8 pizza, but I had to fill out a 500-page questionnaire, that doesn't really match up. That's not worth my time. I could just go buy a pizza. It would take me hours. And my time's... I'm I'm expensive, so I'm not worth like I'm worth more than that. So that's where I think discounts. A lot of times, people hack as a way to increase that motivation, and it does work for some people. But it's not to me. That's not the long long term strategy play. Where I'm more saying is like people coming to websites when you're optimizing funnels. It doesn't matter how simple and easy that funnel is if people don't are not motivated motivated enough to go into the funnel. And you're not selling things like, why is your product better than others? Why is your product good? Why is it worth the cost? What drives me to want to buy this thing? If we talk e-com, that example, even B2B, like, why am I motivated to contact sales? And like, I'm not. If I land on your site and the first thing I see is talk to an expert and it's just a bunch of call to actions that's like talk to an expert with a sticky CTA and live chat and a header and all this stuff and everything's just telling you to talk to someone. And I'm like, I don't even know what you do. I'm not motivated at all to talk to you, to get on a call with a salesperson. This is a waste of my time. I'm not motivated. I'm going to leave. And it doesn't matter if you've added all the sticky CTAs and you've done all this stuff. That motivation is not there and satisfied to say, I want to talk to someone. It's it's an interesting one because so my obviously a lot of the time when i land on these sites i've got an idea of what these companies do because that's why i'm there in the first place Mm -hmm. if i have the opportunity to book in a call with someone i'll just do it and then i get Mm -hmm. off the site quickly because my what i want to do is just have someone just have a person just explain exactly what this tool does and how it's going to benefit me and i guess part of that is the assumption that the website's not going to do that for me and that I'm not, I, <laughs> that's I'm a not bad actually, well, that's terrible right <laughs> yeah i mean and it happened but it happens a lot and it's yeah. it really has got to that point especially in the last few years yeah. where i'm just i'm so fed up with websites not actually having ex- the information i want yeah and and i've gone from never wanting to speak to anyone to 
I will happily just book in a call with someone if it gets me the information I need. If I know it's yeah. going to cost me 30 minutes, but I'm going to get a proper, I, I, at the end of that 30 minutes, I should be able to say yes or no to whether yeah. I want this product. That's yeah. that's worth it to me. That's interesting because I think there are a, there are a certain subset of people who are like that. And you have to think about MQLs on the back end when you're running these types of tests, right? Like how much, how what is the quality of those leads filtering through versus the quantity? That's particularly interesting. And there's probably a segment of users like yourself who are just like, I know the website's going to suck. I'd rather just streamline and get to talking to someone, which is probably why a bunch of companies invest in live chat and all that other stuff. Yep. But that's a band-aid to a to a problem that exists that websites just don't do a good job. And instead of like yeah, exactly. Yeah. Instead of like weird example, but like instead of breaking a wall from your living room to your kitchen, just walk through the door. Right? Like, why are you making it harder for the user to get the information? Just give them better information to be educated, to motivate them to do it. I've had a lot of success what? with testing in B2B where just like adding one of the best practices is less fields on like B2B conversion forms, right? Yeah. That's what's generally been the practice. Yo, I've had so much success testing the opposite because of that principle around motivation. Users who land on a B2B site and then immediately are like contact an expert. They're like, you don't know who I am. I've seen one surface level page of this. There's, I'm going to have to explain myself and do all this stuff versus. I... Yeah. Sorry, go on. Versus. <laughs> I was just going to say like versus adding steps, adding users information, capturing it, like who am I so that that salesperson's more equipped to talk to me. And I know that you know me because if I land on like, let's say I'm a, let's say I'm a construction company and I sell construction software. If I land on your site and you just say first name, last name, email, social security, blood type, all that stuff, then you don't know who I am. You don't know if the solution's right for me. It's just a sales call that's probably going to waste my time versus if you know who I am, you say, I am, maybe I'm a general contractor who specifically I'm a smaller business. I may not be able to afford the biggest suite, but my biggest problem is project management and getting some help with some additional just like automations. If you ask all these questions, it's like, all right, that I have a specific problem set and there's that trust building that all right, maybe the solution actually can work for me. If you're asking these questions, these are things that I need help with. So maybe that software will be able to offer me that help. And boom, you have a better conversation with the salesperson and you generate more leads rather than just the surface first name, last name, email, phone. I've just I've had the call. Yeah, many experiences where I've added fields to forms, various types of forms, and either improved conversions from the, the the form itself or improved conversions mm -hmm. at the at the end of the the actual exactly. experience right the, the end yep. result conversion which is what matters mm -hmm. one example i was talking to someone about a couple of months ago was actually like things like insurance right if you went onto an insurance website or a insurance comparison website and it said we want your first name last name email phone number and we'll give right. you some quotes right you're be like well what are you going right. to quote what are you quoting me for? How do you know? 100%. What's this mm -hmm. quote going to be based on? Like, how, like I'm mm -hmm. not going to be able to trust that quote, right? Mm -hmm. Things like insurance, you've got to be spot on because everyone knows that an insurance company will do whatever it takes to get out of paying you. Yeah, right? <laughs> that's true. So yeah. you you want to be sure they've got all the information they need. So if you start asking if it's the car, 
right? I mean, websites like Go Compare here or Compare the Market, they will ask you for the registration number of the car. You put that in and it will say, is it a a Tesla? Is it a Tesla Model Y, for example? And you'll go, yeah, that's the one. Uh, There's like in black or the the color as well. And you go, yeah, "Yeah, sweet, that's the one. So I know that they know they're putting together a quote for the right car. And then I've just got to answer questions around when did I pass my driving test? Have I had any points or anything like that? And I know that I'm getting a, a at least a pretty good quote based on my situation. Yeah. And that's well, uh, there's a lot. And that's the, the whole thing about re- reducing fields, right? You, it's not, it's just not how it works. As long as, I, I, yeah, I keep saying to people, as long as the information you're requesting, is relevant and the customer understands why you're asking for that information, they will fill it in and they will be happy. 100%. It's about, go back to motivation and value. It's about the value. If if you're answering a bunch of ins- questions about insurance, and then they ask you things like, you know, did you graduate college? What was your GPA? And like, do you have paintings hanging on your wall? And like, do you have a dog? I, like these are examples without the context of we need this to help give you a discount. For example, if you just say this stuff, people might be like, why do you care about the paintings on my wall? Why do you care about my GPA in college? They, then that decreases the motivation that decreases the trust. If you're just adding questions to add questions, yeah. that was kind of a, probably a bad example, but like those are good questions to ask if the context is, we are trying to get you a discount. So if you are super duper smart in college, we could offer you a 2% discount on your insurance. That's why we're asking it. Great example for microcopy, but it's about explaining that trust or at least making it obvious. Like it is obvious if you are in car insurance to ask me questions about my car insurance. Let's say B2B SaaS. If you just ask me first name, last name, email, phone, you know nothing about my needs you know nothing if this is even a good solution for me. I'm a COO. My time is expensive. To hop on a 30-minute call is expensive time for my company and for me and for you guys without sussing out that this is going to be a productive conversation. It's also why I don't love not having a lot of meetings because a lot of times meetings are a waste of my time. Yeah. Mostly every time, everyone's time. But I think that is a concept that's like, why? What is a perceived value? And in a lot of those cases, you could add additional questions to increase that perceived value. You could add questions about your SaaS to say, like, what what is your current status of software? What's your tech stack? What is like, why are you looking for a new tool? You can add these questions to build that trust and ultimately increase the motivation, increase the trust and get more conversions and get better conversions as well, well yeah, as more conversions. You're answering that, that kind of form. And it's, it means at the end of that form, you're thinking they've got the information they need to be able to pitch to me. Mm-hmm. And that motivates me to get onto that call. Whereas, yeah, if, if I just put first name, email, phone number and I book a call, I'm no, I know I'm just going to get some generic, mm-hmm. like generic demo that might not have anything to do with what I actually want to find out from them. Yeah. But one, one thing we wanted to talk about was myths or kind of like myths, mistakes, like bad advice, I suppose, and and maybe any pet peeves you've got around CRO as well, actually. Yeah. So what is your, like, what would you say is your number one, pick a category, right? <laughs> number one myth or like pet peeve, up to you. Best practices as a pet peeve. 
Okay. So that was like, I kind of talked about it a little bit before about like gym versus a personalized plan. For me, the implication around best practices for a lot of people is you could do it with guaranteed success or you can do it because it will work. It may not give you plus 20,000% to conversion rate, but it will at worst be better than not doing it. That is what is implied in the terminology. And that's where that is a fatal, fatal flaw because it lacks context for anything. It also lacks context about implementation. Implementation is so interesting because what works with one site does not work with the other because audiences are different. Even between you and I, we're two different people on the same site where you might go to a B2B site and you said, I just would rather talk to someone. Give me the fastest path to talk to someone because I know their site's going to suck. I have a different viewpoint that if your site sucks and you don't tell me anything up front, I don't have any motivation. That doesn't make you wrong. That doesn't make me wrong. We are just two different people on the site. But we are two different people of personas with many personas coming to you on one site. What is the odds that that's something that's happening across so many other sites with different val props, different people, different audiences, different traffic? You know, everything's different. So as an experimentation elitist, i.e. I like to test all the things, and that is my strong stance, best practices and that thinking is counterintuitive to testing things out and having raw data. That being the case. I do think there is a middle ground of drawing inspiration. So I, re I released a framework that basically just talks about problem-focused hypotheses. So if you start with research that leads you to identifying problems that users face on the website, you develop hypotheses to solve for those problems. And then once you have those hypotheses, you look for solutions to kind of test out that specific hypothesis designs. Yeah. If at that point where you're at the solutioning phase, backed in hypothesis problem and ultimately backed in research, then you're looking for different ways to solve for that problem, different solutions. I think it's perfectly acceptable to competitor look and see how are others potentially solving for this problem. Yeah. And I think that is a logical way to try and understand and solve. But if you just start as, hey, look, Amazon is doing this. Let's test it. Let's do it. You're lacking all that context about research. If this is a problem truly worth solving for, and it in a prioritization framework, I will happily take the idea, but it gets super duper deprioritized because it's not backed in research. I feel like this has come up recently quite a few times, actually. Best practice for me is like the kind of table stakes of an e-commerce website, right? If we, we both go to a website, the same website, we would both expect the menu to probably be either along the top or in the top left on mobile. We probably expect the basket to be top right. We expect certain information to be in the footer, right? That I think is acceptable best practice, right? If these other websites are doing it, you should do it because that's what the customer expects. But then, yeah, when it comes to the types of images you use, the descriptions you use for your products, the, the way search works, or even where might be even where search is positioned, mm -hmm. the payment methods that you offer, all of these things do then become even like things like live chat, right? Should you offer live chat? Do you just need a phone number? Do you need an email? That's all stuff that's really going to depend on your audience, your business, what you're selling. And that's the things you should yeah. test. And so I think there's a spectrum here. So I don't disagree entirely with what you said, but I think there's a spectrum. So for me, the spectrum is on an e-commerce site, 
Do you enable users to purchase online? It's a best practice. If that's not great, you should do that. That's on the side of do it. Always yeah. do it. Then let's say on the other side of like, you should test it. A green CTA on your website. That's an absolute test it. That's not a best practice. That's something that you should test, even though the psychology says green and blah, blah, blah. Like, what if it's not on your brand? What if your whole product page template's green? Like, and it doesn't show any contrast. So I would say test it. That firmly in the side of test it. But then there's these gray areas of things that I think like menus. It's interesting. And here's a counter example to this. Um, I think Aaron Weagle shared this example or something. Paul, Paul, Paul Randall and Spiro shared this to me. This is really interesting. Walmart tested this and saw success. Does this work for everyone? Who knows? But they tested it and they have it at 100%. On their grocery product pages, specifically on groceries, one of their product pages was avocados. The best practice is have a drop-down selector of how many items you have and then an add to cart button, right? So if you want to yep. select three avocados, click the down arrow, click three, add to, and then add to cart and then go. What Walmart does is for that avocado products page, they have three CTAs, add one, add two, add three. Three explicit CTAs for that product page through iterative testing that broke out of that best practice through theoretical testing or at least probably some research there. But, but there, so I would say the best practice on that page is to allow customers to select a number, right? I'm not, I'm not saying what the best practice for doing that is. I'm just saying for me, best practice is allow customers to select a number of them. Then yeah, yeah for, by all means, start playing around with how you allow customers to do that. And that's the bit that's that needs testing to, to optimize. So the- the definitions is probably where people get cut. Like, yeah, you can have, I, just, I think there's I, more like it's concepts. So if you have a concept or the conceptual ideas are more in the theoretical best practice. So you'd say like allow e-commerce to buy online. That's a broader scope of things. That's not really tactical. So theoretically, that's more within the line of you should be more best practicey. Versus the tactical execution, that example I gave is a little bit more tactical and is more in the, like, that worked for them. And that's interesting. So if it works for them, great. But that does break out of the mold. What I don't like is, yeah, when brands say to me, we've done it like this, or we want to do that because that's what everyone else does, or because that's what big competitor does. And they think- yes. And it's 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 this idea that it must work and it must work for everyone because either a competitor do, is doing it or everyone does it. And that could be stuff like sticking live chat on a website. Yeah. But and and it goes in the bottom right corner because that's best practice. But if that best practice has it sitting over your call to action because your call to action is bottom right corner, that's a problem for you. So they just like context, right? They just entirely lack context to your own individual site. And yep. what is a best practice based on how another site is entirely designed could work for them. And it's great, but it may not work for yours because your site is entirely different. Unless every site looks exactly the same, which doesn't, then they all need some context. But I, so this is what I was trying to remember. Best practices, generally speaking, lack the context of just like the thinking behind it. Like 
if you are always looking at best practices, like you're not, are you creating anything original? Are you innovating? Or are you just in a mindset of copy and shortcuts? Like yeah. if all you do is go to like GNC and look for like fat burner pills, like why not just go to the gym and do the work? Like innovate, find some time. And if you're looking for inspiration, you don't want to supplement, great. But do some hard work and try and figure out the problems on your own rather than just say, my strategy is to try and not have a strategy and copy what other people are doing. Best practice becomes average practice because everyone's doing it and therefore no one is doing it best. Which actually could could become worst practice because if you test a best practice and then it gets widespread adoption, then everyone does it. So it's seen as a spam signal. It actually becomes probably more detrimental. So things like social proof. I think social proof is a very interesting one because it's very, very nuanced. I'm not making any rules here. But what I will say is, in terms of the principle around social proof, we have like any landing page search landing page you go to has a very similar template. I don't love it, but also I kind of get it, but I still don't love it and it stifles the innovation. But you have like above the fold, form, hero image, Blade, social proof, case studies, done. Like that's what every page looks like. And if everyone is doing that, you don't stand out if they all look the same. But even then, like, have, have you seen like as seen on TVs where like mm, that's yeah. on TV products where it's like it's the black and white and like someone's doing it wrong and then all oh, the color and like now it works beautifully. And then it's like this random person who's like, I've been using this for 10 years and this is my best thing. And it's like, dude, that's an actor. Like, that's not a real person. But that's that conceptual thinking is what does happen on sites. And it's interesting because like I've run research where the research says we want social proof. We don't get that this works for other people. So then we're like, okay, great. That's pretty easy. We have some case studies. We have some testimonials. Let's plop them on there. With real people, I've tested this a couple of times. It's interesting. We put real people and real testimonials on there. And we got feedback saying like, this is very obviously a stock photo and a like fake testimonial. And I'm like, that's not. But <laughs> people have been trained to, because other people follow that best practice, that it's not like people hack it. So well, just because you think it works. Yeah. The, the amount of interviews I've done with customers who have said, they don't trust reviews on websites now because mm-hmm. either well it's it's mainly they think they're they're all cherry picked right and the the yeah. the brand doesn't allow the negative reviews to show is what a lot of brands do but it also means now the brands who are legitimate and doing it properly their social proof is less powerful because people look at it and go can I do I actually trust this or yeah. have you just stuck all your best reviews at the top so yeah. Yeah, it's it's stuff like that where people people mess around with the with the the best practice as mm-hmm. well, and and yeah, it just devalues it for everyone. And then it's, you have to find not, other ways to get that. The reviews message. is interesting because you most ecom sites can't not have reviews, right? I would say test it, but like you can't not have reviews as a general e-commerce best practice, but it might actually be detrimental to have a bunch of perceived fake reviews on your products 
rather than no reviews, right? I'm not saying we're test removing it, but like, think about that. It might be possible that that's a massive spam signal, especially in a lot of brand sites where they like users have are only coming to that brand site to post their positive review. It's an absurd amount of selection bias, right? It's only the people who are extremely motivated to write a good review or write a bad review are the ones posting. The ones that are five stars and one stars, I don't think generally are reliable. The ones that are the four, three, and twos, to yeah. me, are much more reliable because it's a more honest, like, it's not perfect, but it's not terrible. Or it's, yeah, yeah. A four star tends to be, I like the product. It's really good. But there was just one thing that, you know, wasn't quite right for me or something. Whereas a lot of five stars will be best product ever. Love it. Love this company. And one-star reviews, I mean, you look on Amazon, right? So many one-star reviews are didn't turn up on time yeah. or the packaging yeah. was damaged. And you're mm-hmm. like, what, what is even the point of this review? Right. But that actually brings me on to a point I wanted to make around brand reviews on, on your own website. If I look at your review breakdown and I see that you've got several hundred five-star, maybe a few hundred four-star, and there yeah. is zero one and twos, yeah. That's a red flag for me because I know there's always that person who who gives a one star for something that's unrelated to the product. There's always going to be that person who complains about it being late or something. So if you've got none at all, mm-hmm. it's it's a red flag for me, which is also a shame because there might be some legit businesses that are just doing it incredibly. But yeah. yeah. It's all about trust. And just back, like circling back to best practice conversation, that best practice is, in theory, a pretty good idea, but the execution has so much context missing and so much nuance, and it differs so much on the business that just blindly doing stuff just to do it does not guarantee a net benefit. Even if it's not statsig, it could actually be detrimental. So in that same way, it might be that the reviews is actually a net negative. I mean, like you, you mentioned Amazon, like, some of the reviews are positive and negative with the one stars. So many times Amazon, like there are sellers on Amazon who it's a review for a previous product. They keep the skew yeah. and they just change it to something different so that they could harvest those reviews. And then there's others who are like, you get the box from Amazon. It's some random product that you got that's like niche and random, but it's built. And then they have a card on there. It's like, we'll give you a $20 Amazon gift card, or we'll give you a 5% discount if you just write a positive review and send us proof. So there's that review stuffing, which Mm -hmm. then makes it that, I don't know if you've heard of fake spot, but there's a tool that now weeds out fake reviews or gives ratings because reviews has been compromised in many cases. So what used to be a best practice is now many times hacked. And that's not saying the solutions remove it, but recognize that just doing it doesn't equate equate to guaranteed results. Yeah, I think that sums it up quite nicely. What else do we want to talk about? There was about test. Let's talk about like myths around, I guess, testing itself. Let's talk about that. Okay. One of the things that's more top of mind for me is just about statistical power and testing. So what I'd say is a lot of times the biggest, the thing I hear so many times is it's stat six, so we can call it. And that is an arbit, not an arbitrary. It's one of several metrics we need to know to increase our confidence in the decision making. But statistical power is extremely important. 
So if I have 10 sessions and five sessions converted five times in our test and five sessions converted zero times in our control, we need to do the math, but like it's probably statistically significant if we just had to look at the statistical yeah. threshold. But to consider that powered is not correct. It's extremely underpowered. Is there a significant, is there a big lift? Yes. But it's not powered enough for us to say it's due to random noise. It is not due to random noise and due to the change that we made. So therefore, we have to add a lot of session volume to it to increase the power, to increase the confidence in our decision making there. This happens a lot with like tools which will remain nameless saying there's like a chance of beating the control like three hours into the test at like 95%. And it's like, all right, well, it's been three hours. Let's not make a decision now. And I think there's a lot of conversation around tests being underpowered that I think is totally fair. There's a lot of tests that are underpowered. I just saw a case study of a test and it had like, it showed like it was bragging about the conversion rate lifts. But when you read some of the fine details, it was like, it was like a thousand sessions in each variation. And they said the test ran for like five days. And I'm like, all right, that's probably stupidly underpowered. Yeah. So that's where I think it's problematic, but yeah, go ahead. Sorry. So I I remember for one client last year, I ran a test and after about a hundred conversions on each, yeah, roughly a hundred conversions on each side, well, it was much less than one, but a hundred conversions for the variant. I think the, the test version, the, Conversion rate was up some like 180%. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Like I'd never seen yeah. anything that high after about a hundred conversions. But I was like, no, no. I mean, I shouldn't have even looked really. I know that's bad, but left it running. And eventually when we got to like seven, I think probably at 500 conversions, that's that conversion rate was down to about plus 8%, which yeah. is still great. It's still nice, yeah. but obviously not quite as exciting as 180%. But that's yeah. like, that's the, the danger of looking at tests and and calling them too early just because they're statistically significant yeah because you've not actually run enough data like like your example so i think that's a great example right it's it's trying to do as best as we can in a field that's very risk averse meaning experimentation is literally there to try and mitigate risk and generate learnings our field is very math dependent, math heavy, which is also why I don't get the whole thing around best practices, because it's based on assumptions that what works for you and your audience will work for others. So if we're in a math heavy field where we need to reach stupidly high thresholds to call winners, but we're comfortable copying other people and like following as best practices, there's a mismatch of like where we're at. So I'd rather say, let's just raise the bar everywhere. And I think tests that are underpowered Let's not have them underpowered. Increase the disruption, test bigger things, increase the sample size. There's strategies you can do to increase and get that threshold and that power up. But I do think there's a conversation around like skewing maybe towards too much towards the other side where you it's required to have like hundreds of thousands of sessions for tests to ever reach statistical significance. And that to me lacks a little bit of nuance, which is... There are certain tests that will require a lot of sessions because in those cases, you're looking at 1% lifts, 2% lifts to conversion rate. In order to detect those changes and have it adequately powered, you need to have a lot of sessions. So factually speaking, that is correct. 
for those tests where that that observed lift is there. However, that doesn't mean that that's the lay of the land. In a perfect world, if you could have 100,000 sessions in every test, yeah. But in a world where we want to foster experimentation with more businesses, we shouldn't gatekeep to say you can only have 100,000 sessions. If you have 50,000, sorry, you can't run any experiments ever. Like, no, that's not the way you do it. You just scale up on the disruption. And if you have 25,000, just scale up on the disruption. Do research, track microconversions, and maybe think about your KPIs differently to try and get to a point of learnings so that you can swing big and then ultimately hit those wins. We're in a weird spot where for a long time, the conversation has been tests, like we need to scale up the power of the tests. We can't just look at statistical significance after three hours and call it. But I don't want, I want to make sure we don't score skew so much and swing the pendulum too much to the other side that like, you can only run a test if you have millions of visitors a day. Otherwise, don't ever think about it. Don't even think about experimentation. I'd say don't do that. There's a happy yeah. middle ground. Oh, you used like radical. So you said radical, radicalize your tests. Is that what you said? Disruption. Disrupt, not radical. No, I say radical. Yeah, <laughs> kind of, I guess, a similar thing. So I talk about like radical testing, right? So if you haven't got the traffic or if, if you just want, if you're not really making a, a tweak and an optimization, you want to really test the impact of something, then you've mm-hmm. got to really make it stand out. You really want to get a reaction from, from your visitors, whether it's positive or negative. Obviously, we mm-hmm. we want positive, but either way, if you get a plus or minus 10% change, you've got a pretty good indicator that what you've done has an, had an impact on that customer experience. And then you do that analysis, come up with an iteration, work out what the next steps from there are. Whereas if you if you have if you're getting a 1% or a 2% improvement, you kind of, I guess you need to get that power so you can really be confident you've actually got that one to two percent and not yeah. a, a a minus one to two percent by accident. But I've also remembered the other thing that I'd forgotten earlier. One thing that we get in advertising here, I imagine you get it in the States as well. I particularly remember it from like dentist adverts, like like toothpaste, floss, stuff like that. Or even, I can even be like shampoo and stuff like that. And it's things like, it'd be a survey. It, it would say like at the bottom, it would say survey results. And it would say something like 64, I think one was 54% of 73 women agreed with this. And you're just like, that is such a, it's such a low percentage of such a small sample size. Like, that's also it- very, that's very crappy marketing. If you say 54% of 74%. Well, I think they have to put it in there when they're making certain claims, they have to put these, these statements in there. Are we going percent or percent though? That's so strange. No, no, percent of a number of people. So it was, a, it was like 54% oh, of, 73 women or something like that i see i see i thought you said i'm sorry i misheard that (laughs) yeah it's and i I, yeah this that that one i I think those are numbers actually because it's really stood out to me as like not only like just why would you surely you just wouldn't run the advert instead of saying about half of a very small number of people agree with this like that's not a very good threshold for something that's i think it might have been shampoo or something and people can be quite particular about shampoo right? Because they care about their hair. So that's not a very good stat to put in front of people, but it's also for the purpose of like a test. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really tell you anything, does it? Well, I mean, so this is what a lot of, I would say not top tier 
experimentation agencies and CRO people are people who just test do, which is their case studies say, and only focus on percents. They they are very clever. I'd say, I don't even think it's clever. I think it's just not good, but they'll say like, our efforts lifted conversion rates by 300%. And it's like, yo, you went from one to three leads though. Like, and it's not static and you're not calling out anything about the statistics. You're showing no sample volume. You're showing no conversion volume. You're talking nothing. All you're doing is giving a really sexy number. And that's another one of those like hacked up best practices, right? Show numbers and just like, don't give any context. And that doesn't build trust and like, so many agencies I see do that. And it's really frustrating because when you actually dig into the numbers, you're like, this is just, you're not, you don't understand statistics or you understand it so well that you're just hacking it to make it look good. And that's a very clear sign of an agency that you don't want to work with. If yeah. their lack of transparency is such that they only give you percents or they only give you the sexy numbers and they don't give you like the actual story. Like for yeah. example, at Spiro, we're more than happy to tell you if a test lost. I don't want to say an eyeline. We're not more than happy to tell you if a test lost, but like we will tell you if a test lost, but we have a plan. We have learnings. We'll talk to you about potentially why it lost and how we're going to move forward and continue to test. But dude, a lot of agencies, and I've dealt with this in-house, it's frustrating. Like they'll, they'll talk to all the C-suite and they'll f- focus on like one number that looks marginally better. And then you like go and dig into the results and you're like, you cherry pick this number. The rest of the actual numbers look terrible, but you cherry pick this one number because you as an agency are incentivized to give results. And if your only result is this one number that's cherry picked, that looks good, but the overall thing is shit, then. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I've been on calls because it, it happens. Obviously it happens in CRO with things like percentages, but it happens in other marketing areas as well. Right? I've, I've been on hundred percent pitches with other 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 agencies i've been in like kind of strategy meetings with other agencies for clients and you'll get stuff our ppc cpa is 20 quid 20 quid this is mm-hmm. great like we're doing fantastically and then they'll kind of skip over the fact that their brand cpa is like two pounds and their non-brand is like 200 yeah and they're just so they're just blending it to make it look look good and then email yeah. the one that bothers me on email is when people just say no, I literally had someone in a, in a meeting say email has driven 40% of revenue last month. Like, There's no way. Yeah. No, given, given I know like how many people sign up to the emails, how many people sign up to emails, how many people get abandoned carts and those rates and things. Mm-hmm. It's literally just impossible for email to have driven 40% of revenue, but they'll just happily make yeah. that claim. And then what they'll do is they'll just use a screenshot from something like Clavio, which supports that because the way Clavio attributes the revenue yeah. enables them to do that. So it's yeah, stuff like that. To go yeah, full circle, it, it to go full circle, it's almost like your users coming to your site need to be motivated. They need to be trustworthy. But even within experimentation programs being built, your CRO person has to be trustworthy too. Your experimentation team has to be trustworthy. Your data team that has to go all ways. And if your experimentation agency in-house person is not honest and open and transparent about the data. An in-house person and agency can easily manipulate the stats just to look good, which further decreases the trust in the tool of experimentation rather than like realizing that some people just suck. 
some agencies just suck and they're just there to make money rather than genuinely help the business in the same way. Like so many websites try and hack like a very bad user experience or not even a bad user experience, let's say, but like some people are just like, just get on a phone and talk to us rather than like motivate and build trust and get people to want to talk to them. Yeah. I mean, the, the amount of times I've heard, I've heard brands say we've been burnt before by an agency. Like whether they're saying it to me, whether they're saying it about PPC agencies or whatever area, like so many people saying we're reluctant because we've been burnt before. It's like they've been burnt by people. And I don't want to go into this because we haven't got time, but the amount of agencies, especially like Facebook ads agencies, PPC agencies that are popping up because people have done like a quick YouTube course. And Mm -hmm. actually what they're being taught is how to get clients and they're being taught, like, don't worry about how to execute until you've got a client. Yeah. Like, it was almost yeah. like, don't waste your time learning how to do Facebook ads until you yeah. get a client paying you and then learn yeah. it on the job with your first couple of clients. And it's that sort of stuff, which just, just kind of burns it for everyone else. So it's actually done in Kruger effect. And I'm very geeky about this thing, but basically it's a, it's a chart that it's on the Y axis. It's confidence on the X axis it's knowledge and very early on it skews up so there is low knowledge i'm sorry it's confidence and knowledge so very early on there's you can have extremely high confidence but low actual knowledge and that's a very it's what's called amount of peak stupidity that's a very dangerous spot to be because in that case you could probably find a lot of agencies that will prey on that that you think you know enough to be able to suss out bad agencies and you feel like enough to be able to to run a program or hire an agency to keep them steered straight they could totally take advantage of that so yeah yeah it's annoying cool we are out of time so just before we finish up is there anyone in the e-com kind of marketing space or any, anyone at a brand that you'd want to sit down for lunch with i'm thinking of two different types of people like like one group might be someone who's really mature and really gets experimentation. So like a Walmart or an Amazon product manager, I don't, I don't know a specific name, but like yeah. someone within that space of extremely mature in that space. So I think Walmart would be particular. someone like in the experimentation space at Walmart would be particularly interesting, but I'm like, I'm kind of balancing between that and like someone in the e-com space that is pushing like, someone like Apple, some product manager at Apple and understanding what are they trying to do to sell because they do sell a lot of direct and they do sell a lot of indirect, but what are they doing? Because you go to that site and their best practices are not best practices. Like a lot of this stuff is just breaking the mold, but there's a little bit of domain authority in there that like, they at least have the UX that it's very intuitive. It makes sense. But it's, it's almost like with Apple, they've got, their own best practice right the apple the iphone page is it's the same structure every time right but it's very very different to to well yeah it's pretty different to other product pages but it is more like a landing page i suppose it's really really intuitiveness is just it's just usable it is just easy to understand if you put them through it put any user through a user test 99 a bunch of people would be able to easily use their pages and buy from them even though they don't follow a lot of traditional stuff their best practice is just being intuitive 
and allowing for it to be easily used versus like, have you ever seen healthcare software? Oh my God. It is so old, so dated back when like UX was just a total afterthought and it's still being used. I definitely don't want to talk to those people because okay. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely don't want to talk to them. But like the the difference is Apple is intuitive. That software definitely not intuitive, but it's unfortunate because like what can they do? Can they can they spend spend the money to transfer everything off anyway? That's a whole other discussion. Yeah. But <laughs> cool. Well, just finally, have you got like one or two tools that you'd recommend brands use, maybe around like research or or something to do with the experimentation? Yeah. I, so I'd say like, I don't want to be tool specific because I do think there are a lot of tools and I don't want to give any votes of confidence or not votes of confidence to any specific tools. But I will say is like, there's a lot of heat map tools you should use. There's a lot of session recording tools you should use. You should make sure your data and your analytics is totally like accurate and validated. Testing tools. Like those are the basic founded user testing winter. I will plug Winter because of sister of Aspiro, but yeah. like, <laughs> but use these basic tools to augment your insight generation from your program. There's a lot of expensive tools. There's a lot of tools that are not expensive. And I'd say in terms of process, you don't need an expensive tool to run a program, but you might outgrow the tools quickly, which only means you're evolving and you've earned the right to continue to grow and get better tools. So don't, don't like box yourself in or don't box yourself out saying we can't do any testing because we don't have any tools. There are plenty of tools that are cheaper that still allow for you to get the process flowing, building good process, building good, like we this full circle it back to the gym, get those reps in. It doesn't matter if you are doing the workout exactly perfectly, get the reps in, build the rituals, do everything you need to do to continue to build good process. And then once you figured it out, spend the extra hundred bucks a month, 200 bucks a month to get a personal trainer, really hone in on getting a good optimization experimentation program. Cool. It's good advice. I like it. Um, it's been a pleasure. What's the best way of getting in touch if anyone wants to, to, to have a chat with you? You can just follow me on LinkedIn. Post yeah. a lot of memes. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did like you one today. I swear you posted that about a week or two before the end of the year, didn't you? I am running an A-B test, but we'll okay. keep that on the hush-hush. Interesting. All right. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Thanks so much, Shiva. All right. Take care. Thanks for having me on. The two most important things in CRO are reducing friction and increasing motivation. And you can do this in a number of ways. You can, of course, offer discounts, as Shiva mentioned, regarding the pizza, but you do risk damaging the value of your brand. Best ways to tackle this are simply removing or fixing unnecessary roadblocks, things like super slow websites and no guest checkout, or just having too many steps built into the process are all great examples of friction that reduces conversion. But you can also motivate as well. Help the customer see the end result, the desired outcome that they're gonna get from your business and your products. If you can keep the customer focused on that, they'll push through and then make the purchase. If you'd like to hear more from Shiva, you can find him on LinkedIn. Any other podcast questions, feedback, or guest requests, please send them over to will at customerswhoclick.com or DM me on LinkedIn. Next up, I've got Matt Kelly joining me. We're going to be talking about his journey growing his brand, Space Goods. But until then, keep those customers clicking.